Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Here we are again in our brand new studio. Yes. What is this, uh, show number two? Show number two. I'm just really excited because we got through the opening without a mistake. <laughs> I do feel successful. This is going to be a good show, you guys. All right. Uh, helping us on the show tonight and each and every week is the one and only Bob Bontrager. Whoop, whoop. Except there is actually two Bob Bontragers because his dad also has the same. <laughs> oh. Well, All right. I guess that's true. And we are live. Yes. We are not on tape. We are not on tape. We've been gone. We've been. Um, you were gone for two I, weeks. I was gone for almost three weeks. It had been yeah. three weeks on Tuesday. And but glad to be back. Had some adventures in Georgia, um, went down and spoke at a camp for a week with my podcast co-host for Offco, Kevin Briggins. And then together we were at Impact 360 and mm -hmm. that was amazing. Camp was amazing as well. Um, but it was just a, a really good, you know, two weeks. Then we went to a wedding. We did. We did. Went to a wedding in Texas. And then you went and pretended to be a single parent for several days with your nephews. Yes, I actually had the opportunity to sit, to babysit two of my nephews. My oldest nephew plays travel ball and um, was invited to an invitational in Georgia. So we just missed each other. And nephew two and three were home alone. And so I got to go down and be auntie for my nephews who are um, 11. My baby nephew is 11 and the middle nephew is 13. And we had a good time. Like I was so excited. I'm so glad I did that. You just let him eat cake every day and stay up as late as they want. Well, the internet goes off at a certain time. Oh. So there's that. And they like to, to do video games. Um, and they need the internet for that, but their parents are pretty strict on the timing and things like that. But we did eat a lot of ice cream. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was a lot of ice cream, a lot of ice cream and a lot of movies. That's right. Yes. Well, good for you. Yeah. yeah. You had a good time. You said you were pretty tired. I was exhausted. I don't know how people can do it. Like, and especially with boys, because they are rambunctious. They, like, they go. You finally sent them outside to wash your car. Yeah, that you, didn't go so well, but yeah. Yeah, I sent them outside. And, and they also have a huge dog. Um, but they're just boys. They eat all the time. It was, I was like, you know what? Today for lunch, we're having ice cream. Lunch. Is going to be because I'm not cooking. I'm not. I don't know how people do this here thing with children, but I'm not. I'm not accustomed. Yeah, we'll, didn't we'll feel like I was. The, uh... I wasn't built for it. All yeah. right. And so yes. All but... right. So we are live. We want to invite everyone to add your voice to the stream tonight. We're going to have uh, Neil Shenvey on in just a few moments here. Uh, this is the show where we actually read the comments. Yes. And. Uh, incorporate your questions into the stream. So go ahead and put those into the the thing. Now, before I forget, how are you? How What have you been doing? Because we talked about me. I don't want to just jump over. Oh, I was going on with the house cleaning. I know. How are you? Oh, okay. Because you asked me if I was going to ask you. Well, so you know, sure. yeah, do good. Just living life and 
keeping busy. <laughs> I thought you had some announcement. Never mind. No, I don't have any announcements. Okay. I thought you was going to tell me something good. Okay. Well, I have a big secret. What is it? You didn't say anything. <laughs> You're such a mess. <laughs> Let's keep going. All right. So tonight's moderators are the one and only Emily Bontrager and Laura Hartley. Whoop, so, whoop. Uh, make sure to hit that thumbs up and that helps propagate the show out. It forces the robots to um, send out the notifications. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm trying not to cough. And you um, must so, be backstage like, what I, are they doing? My I, gosh. I, when I'm talking slow, I'm resting my voice so I don't cough. Um, okay, well, this show was brought to you by... Family 210 Clothing. Yeah, the Center for Biblical Unity and the Theology Mom Podcast. Um, so go check out our t-shirt designs if I can look yes. at the right camera. All right, there's one of mine for Theology Mom. I don't co-parent with the government. You can go check that out at family210.com. Uh, all right, drag so queens. drag queens. Tonight we're talking about queer theory. Yes. Uh, Emily sent me some crazy paper yesterday. Um, drag pedagogy. Mm -hmm. This was in a journal called Curriculum Inquiry. Uh, and it was, it's called Drag Pedagogy, the Playful Practice of Queer Imagination in Early Childhood. This is a sort of a horrifying paper. The authors are someone by the name of Harper Keenan. And the co-author is Little Miss Hot Mess. Who's a drag queen? Little Miss Hot Mess. Yet, you know, I feel like... Now, you know what? I'm not going to say that because the Lord don't like ugly. So I'm just going to keep it to myself. But, but drag queens are everywhere now. It's like the, the nexus of culture. It is. And I, I think we have to ask a bigger question of, you know, if people are writing about the pet drag pedagogy, what is the intent? And especially if you're if you are looking at it in early childhood education, what is the intent? What what is the goal of of um, introducing drag queens to your five-year-old. We have a lot to talk about well, with my cousin, Neil. I'm just saying. <laughs> I have questions. Yeah, it's, um, it's in, it is interesting. Um, I'm trying to find a little quote here that part of it is to, you know, um, reduce stigmatization of shame surrounding drag play and um, helping to... Um, it's not simply about LGBT lives, but introducing the idea of living queerly. So there's def definitely, um, it seems like in this, uh, this article, at least, you know, the, the goal here is normalization. I mean, yeah. you got these drag queens in public school libraries or public libraries, middle school assemblies, neighborhood block parties. I've seen several of those on Twitter. Well, someone on YouTube, Karen, just said, this is very timely. Tomorrow, there is a drag me to church event in Fort Myers, Florida. Will be a drag show and drinks. They say proceeds will benefit local churches. If your church is accepting the proceeds from a drag queen story hour, you need to um, go ahead and just walk on. <laughs> You need to go on and, and shake the dust off your sandals and pray for them. But I mean, that's just my own personal wow. opinion. You don't have to take it from the Lord. But, you know, I, I don't know wow. that that that's that's really biblical. OK, so 
big picture, what we have to know is queer theory is really just one of the branches of the critical social theories. Neil's going to walk us through some of the specifics. Yeah. I'm glad he's here. So let's get him on. Yes, let's do it. All right. Fire up the Zoom machine. There he is. Hello. Yes. Hello, now we ladies. have all kinds of questions. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to answer. Yes. I mean, the questions are here and they are real. All right. Well, let's start off with, for those uh, three people who are watching who don't know who you are, maybe give us the one minute introduction of who you are and how you became interested in studying the critical social theories. Sure. So I, I'm as Neil Shenvey. I, uh, this was not my field. I have a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. I became a Christian in graduate school and got involved in apologetics. And actually I just published my first book on apologetics with Crossway. It came out last month. Um, but if you buy that, hoping you'll hear about critical theory, you'll be disappointed. Uh, is that was written, I probably finished the first graph four years ago. And then when I finished the book, I began looking around for other areas of research. And I thought, what's happening with all this woke stuff that I kind of hear Black Lives Matter? What, what's, the, what's going on in our culture? And so I began reading a lot about something called critical theory, which, as you said, it, it spends many critical social theories that include queer theory, critical race theory, critical pedagogy. And it's kind of a framework that a lot of theorists use to understand social dynamics today. And so, uh, so now I'm here to talk to you guys, I guess, about one of those expressions of critical theory, which is queer theory. Yeah, I think that uh, I want to encourage everyone to go check out Neil's website, uh, Shenvi Apologetics, uh, and you will be able to benefit from his many, many book reviews. He really does a great job. You must read like a book an hour. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Studying and reading yes. the primary sources and has really inspired us in so many ways to um, be diligent about reading mm -hmm. those first sources and inspiring others. So thank you for setting such a good example for us, Neil. And um, as we talk about uh, queer theory tonight, uh, just digging in deeper, because this, I think, is the the part of the critical social theories is really on the rise. Yeah, mm -hmm. I um, actually wanted to give a shout out because many people have heard me talk about Pat Sawyer, um, who was like extremely pivotal in our conversations and me coming out of critical race theory. Um, and that is actually Neil's writing partner, if people don't know that. And so there's a connection yes. um, all the way around. Yeah. But yes, the queer theory and just... I call it an indoctrination into um, our schools, into churches, in, into like just the, like you, you said, the normalization of just everyday life. Um, this extends beyond like a drag queen story hour into um, what we've talked about before. To me, the comprehensive sexual education, which to me, to me is founded in a lot of the in the queer theory. But can you help us? by defining queer theory, first of all, so that we all have a, a foundational understanding of what we're talking about tonight? So uh, one of the undisputed characteristics of queer theory is that it's hard to define. So here's a, one of the, I think the best book on queer theory out there um, that I've read is Jagoz's Queer Theory and Introductions right here. Um, and at it, it chapter one page one says queer is very much a category in the process of formation. It's definitional indeterminacy, it's elasticity, 
is one of its constituent characteristics. So it's almost definedly undefined. Um, I found this, here's a website. This is the University of Illinois Chicago website. It says, uh, queer theory is both theory and political action. Definition is impossible. So, like, mm. okay, right, right off the bat, when people say, well, you can't even define it. Well, like, no one can define it. But here's, this is, the website goes on. This is a very helpful definition in one sentence. They say, queer theory can be summarized as exploring the oppressive power of dominant norms, particularly those relating to sexuality. And the immiseration they cause, that means they cause oppression, they cause misery, to those who cannot or do not wish to live according to those norms. In analyzing the power of the normal, in quotes, queer theory contributes to a politics and ethics of difference. It challenges dominant norms, especially those of sexuality. That's a great little tight paragraph talking about what's the major theme of queer theory. I put it this way. Queer theory is, um, its goal is to to expose and to destabilize and to trouble all traditional categories, norms, ways of thinking, even language about gender and sexuality. It's one sentence. It's trying to trouble and destabilize everything about these categories of gender, sexuality. And that's really where the kind of the rise of the drag queens, I think, comes in, Mm -hmm. is that it's part of that destabilization of the traditional norm, what we would call the biblical norm of gender expression and um, biological sex. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's important to to have this conversation is <laughs> to understand everything and put it in context. Well, yeah. and, and it, you know, it's, 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 just, we'll go there, but this, make, I got to get this book out, you know, um, so this is another great book on queer theory uh, called Queer Theory, Gender Theory by Ricky Wilkins. And let me read, because you mentioned drag. This is incredible. doesn't blow your mind. So, um, so, it, so I, believe it or not, I, I don't know. We'll get this later too. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to refer to the author as Wilkins. I, I would, I'm genuinely not entirely sure what the author's sex is. Um, but the, this is a quote from the book um, on page 146. Wilkins says this, this is a direct quote. She, uh, the author summarizing the thought of Judith Butler, who's one of the founders of queer theory. So the author's summarizing Butler's thought and says this, woman, the word woman is to drag, not as real as to copy. It's not like woman is real and drag is copy. It's not that. But as copy is to copy, Mm. gender turns out to be a copy for which there is no original. Listen to this sentence. All, all gender is drag. All gender is queer. But it's not they're simply saying that these categories that are traditional, we've gotten them wrong. These categories of male and female are, are wrong. Here are the right categories. They're not saying that. They're saying all gender is just a copy with no original. All gender is just in, a, in this arbitrary construction. There is there's either another way to another statement from the book. We might as well declare that there are only two genders or a hundred or even none. Because gender is entirely constructed. These are not just statements of reality. Uh, they're political statements as well. They serve certain agendas. They empower or erase certain bodies. That's page 99 of the book, Queer Theory, Gender Theory. So uh, the point is, it goes way beyond we got these categories wrong. The underlying premise, the underlying worldview uh, of queer theory is that these categories don't really exist except as our constructions. And we can, therefore, it's actually almost in a way good to transgress them and expose the way they're just arbitrary. 
I want to say a quick uh, comment, and then Monique's going to jump to a question. I want to caution everyone in making comments on YouTube. Help us not get censored by making crazy comments. Please don't make a lot of comments um, that will cause YouTube to ban this video, okay? So please use care and discretion in what you're saying in the comments. Yes. If you have a, if you have a legitimate question, that's fine, but please do not just have off-the-cuff comments because I don't want this video to get messed up uh, once yeah. we sign off. Good, good thought. All right. Um, yeah, and so if you, and also if you notice that our moderators have taken off your comment, um, it isn't, don't take it personal. It's just that we want to make sure that the video is able to be used as a resource for others and isn't flagged by YouTube. And YouTube can be sensitive about certain things. So, um, gosh, a lot of what you said in the definition or lack of definition regarding queer theory made me think about, especially with this like disheveling of, of society or what I would consider like a transformation of society made me think a lot of critical race theory. Now, Krista and I tend to say that critical race theory is a part of critical theory and all of the social theories are tied together like a train or they are, you know, like links on a chain and you can't really unlink one and just take one by itself. Can you, um, to be an ally for yeah. one is to be an ally for all. Yeah. And that's yeah. really Kendi's model. Yeah. Kendi, mm -hmm. you know, says you can't be, um, anti-racist without being a feminist or without standing for the queer movement and, and things like that. And I'm not quoting him directly, but well, I can quote him directly. I Go ahead right in front now. Of me. Come on, cousin. Come on through. So you know, really your you know question is, is giving us examples of the inter yeah, connection. Like how how the, are they connected? Like, yeah. do you see them as being connected? And if so, how do you see them as being connected? There, there are many ways. So historically, there are four sort of major influences that, that, that produced queer theory today. And this is, you can't, so at a very simple level, you'd say that critical theory is the umbrella. And critical theory understands a society is divided into categories of oppressor and oppressed, along lines of race of all these different categories race class gender sexuality physical ability etc and it tries to expose how oppression's embedded in ideas oppression is not just you know cruelty or overt malice and animus but oppression's embedded in language in symbols in norms and values and so there are these ideas like so the patriarchy would be the idea that masculine is superior to feminine it would create this this hierarchy of men are better than women and then you have a white supremacy is this ideology of racial superiority where whites are better than people of color. Then you have things like heteronormativity where heterosexuals are the oppressor group and, heter and LGBTQ people are the oppressed group. And so if you think about that view, these, all these critical social theories take that perspective and then apply it in different areas. So critical race theory applies that perspective to race. Queer theory applies it to sexuality. Feminism applies it to gender. Uh, pedagogy, critical pedagogy applies to education. Um, that's one way to think about it. But all of these fields really have their unique origins too, and so draw on different sources. So, for example, here's a one uh, departure in a sense. Queer theory also draws heavily on, so besides critical theory, which came out of the Frankfurt School and, and Marxism before that, um, but critical theory, oh, sorry, queer theory also draws um, a lot on three other sources. One is feminism, uh, secondly, feminism. Two is the gay liberation movement of the 60s. And three, which is very important, is postmodernism. 
So Derrida and Foucault are are, unif- are uniformly cited as sort of the huge figures behind queer theory. And there, there are influential in some critical race theory, some of it, but they're not like the founders. Whereas I would argue that Foucault is some, in some sense, he's like the Derrick Bell of queer theory. So Derrick Bell's like the godfather of critical race theory. He was like, he, he was the forerunner of it. He didn't really create it, but he, all of his ideas really produced it. And then uh, Foucault, you could argue, uh, particularly his book, The History of Sexuality, was the godfather of queer theories. The point is, it, it, it's kind of simplistic to be like, okay, there's this one broad way of thinking about the world, critical theory, and it's expressed in just these different areas because each discipline is kind of more complicated than that. But at a, at a first order approximation, that's, that's pretty good. I'm sorry, I have quotes for you. So I, I this, yeah, go ahead with the quotes. Here are the quotes. So, uh, Kendi, uh, his book, How to Be an Anti Racist, um, cha- page 159, he says, Anti racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti capitalism policies. Anti capitalism cannot eliminate class racism without anti racism. On page 189, he says, To be truly, to be, to truly be anti racist is to be feminist. To truly be feminist is to be anti racist. And then on page 187, he says, we cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. To be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, my masculinity, of my heterosexuality, of their intersections. And that's, and again, people will say, well, that's just Candy. He's not really doing critical race theory. Well, let me hit you with another quote. (laughs) This is from Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, who is one of the co-founders of critical race theory. She coined the term intersectionality. She coined the term critical race theory. And she says this in 1990, so pretty much one year after critical race theory really emerged as a movement, roughly, right? She says this in her article entitled A Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Law and Politics. Um, She says, critical race theory goes beyond liberal understandings of race and racism by exploring those of its manifestations that support, listen, her list, patriarchy, heterosexism, and class stratification. The normative stance of critical race theory is that massive social transformation is a necessary precondition of racial justice. And she'll go on to repeat that same claim with uh, three other co-authors in the book Words That Wound, Matsuda, Lawrence, and Delgado, and Crenshaw wrote that anthology in 1993, again, a few years. They're all co-founders of CRT, and they again say that a defining element of CRT is that racial oppression, I'll quote, racial oppression is experienced by many in tandem with oppression on grounds of gender, class, or sexual orientation, And therefore, they say the interests of all people of color necessarily require not just adjustments within established hierarchies, but a challenge to hierarchy itself. Wow. I could go on and on, but I'll I'll leave it there. But the point is when people are like, oh, you know, these are just separate. These are totally esoteric academic fields not related at all you're 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 listening to chris rufo you're listening to scaremongering people on fox news i'm like no i'm listening to kimberly crenshaw i'm listening to the founders of the movement and this is what they're saying i think that's really important to put out there because you know that's often the claim is well queer theory isn't actually in the public schools nobody's teaching school children, uh, you know, about Matsuda and that sort of thing. But these ideas mm-hmm. in practice mm-hmm. are shaping 
a lot of things that are happening in schools. We've been talking about um, how it's coming in through uh, social emotional learning and it comes under that rubric of mental health. So there's different ways that it comes in, Mm -hmm. but this is largely what is shaping um, the praxis of many of our public spaces now. Um, Now we've been using a couple of words, I think need some additional definition is sex and gender. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes those words are kind of used interchangeably and would be really helpful for us to understand how people in the queer theory stream parse out the definitions of those terms. Sure. So, uh, so Queer theory would definitely distinguish between sex, which is a biological category, and gender, which they see as a social construct, as purely a social construct. Let me just read to you um, from Wilkins' book, page 40 and 41. Uh, I'll I'll just refer to, again, I literally, I think he's a biological male, but I don't know. um, So I'm just going to say Wilkins. Gender, this is a quote, gender is a language, a system of meanings and symbols, along with the rules, privileges, and punishments pertaining to their use for power and sexuality, masculinity and femininity, strength and vulnerability, action and passivity, dominance and weakness. The point is gender is a language. Gender is a a system of symbols and meanings. It's something that we have built. Here's another quote from uh, Judith Lorber's essay, Night to His Day. Um, She writes, Western society's values legitimate gendering. It's something you do. It's an action. By claiming that it all comes from physiology, female and male procreative differences. But gender and sex are not equivalent. And gender as a social construction does not flow automatically from genitalia and reproductive organs. The main physiological differences of males, females and males. And then again, Anderson and Collins in Race, Class, and Gender write, gender, gender, listen, this is, this is a great, listen to it. Gender, like race, is a socially constructed experience, not a biological imperative. Sex refers to one's biological identity as male or female. Gender refers to the systematic structuring of relationships mm. between women and men in social institutions. Gender is a learned identity, but as with race, it cannot be understood at the individual level alone. So gender is sort of like this, this, these categories we've created and by which we structure society into, you know, with the men on the top and women who are a marginalized group. And so gender refers to that, that system that we've created, not to biological facts. That's their view. They're, they're just distinct. There's sex and there's gender. So the sex is the biology. It is how... Um, you know, we are creative, as the Bible would say, male and female. Mm. But queer theory comes along and kind of separates out the biology or the sex from the gender. Mm. And they would say that the gender is, is how you express yourself or how you appear or how you live. And that is the social construct, that being a woman or being a man is kind of subject to almost whatever you want that to be. And so maybe we should talk about like some practical examples of how this is showing up in the culture and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, more analogy here, it's kind of helpful. Um, And the one thing that's important is they, they don't just say that sex and gender are different. They say that they're, they're trying to trouble. Queer theory is all about troubling these categories and, and showing them, dismantling them and showing they're arbitrary. 
So here's a good analogy. Imagine that I, we as a culture, as a culture, we defined, defined a jock to be anyone who's taller than six feet. And a nerd refers to anyone who is shorter than six feet tall. Now, there is a biological reality there. People are either over six feet tall or under six feet tall. That's biology. That's just you are. You can measure it. It's objective. But then the category of jock or nerd that we've created are arbitrary putting people in buckets. Like, well, you're over six feet tall. You're a jock. You're under six feet tall. You're a nerd. Well, that's arbitrary. Why six feet? Why not 5'11? Why not 6'1? And why, why not? What about weight? How, how, what if you really are tall but very skinny? Are you still a jock? So what Curry Theory does is it's trying to expose the ways in which these categories of male and female don't even really, not only are they, are they socially constructed, but they're arbitrary. They're, they're, these gray, they're blurry areas and gray areas and, and blurry lines. So they make you question then by, do, by pointing that out. Uh, they're, they're, and this is why you have things like um, drag queens and also people pointing at intersex individuals who have both male and female characteristics due to a variety of genetic con conditions. They're pointing those out in order to trouble you, to make you think, oh, it's not as black and white as I thought, and to point out these are really arbitrary constructs. Um, so that's, again, that explains why uh, they're going a bit. That's why people are trying to, even you'll see discussion now, <laughs> I should add this, uh, queer theorists don't just contest the idea of gender as a social, they actually will go farther and say that sex too, sex, biological wow. sex, is also in some sense a social construct. So this, this is incredible. Um, so Judith Butler, again, one of the, I'd say almost the founder of queer theory, um, she says, well, doesn't it seem like, isn't she, she's asking, isn't it, does it seem like that sex, biological sex is, on, in her words, on the far side of language? Like in other words, you either have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. It's not about how you describe it with language. It's not about words. It's about a reality. It's out there beyond the effects of culture. But so then Wilkins asks, but what if sex is already a gendered way of looking at bodies? What if sex is already gender? So that distinction between the two is not a distinction at all. What is sex, the original given, transcendent and universal? What if that could be deconstructed? So here's an here's, like, how could you deconstruct chromosomes? Well, here's the point. Um, if I close my eyes, I'm a guy. I don't mean this is different, but if I close my eyes, you probably couldn't even tell me what color my eyes were. Like the you don't look at me and be like, oh yeah, he has blue eyes, he has green eyes, he has brown eyes, and they're brown, right? But I don't know. I don't look around looking and oh, oh, that person is a blue eye. That person is a brown eye. Or what about earlobes? Like are your earlobes detached or are they attached? You, know, you can earlobes differ a little bit. No one cares. It's just a little little flap of skin. You're like, I don't look around. I don't categorize people by earlobe type. Well, their point is, we have this fixation with certain flaps of skin. We call them penises. We call them vaginas. But what makes those things so relevant? Why do we immediately look at someone? Oh, they have a penis. Like, well, we don't look at someone and say they have they have blue eyes. They have a, a detached earlobe. So the, their point is, yes, sure, there are these things out there on our bodies. But why do we group whole sets of bodies according to this one, why not use their big toe? Why not use their ear? Why not use their eye color? Well, because gender is, 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 is basically gender and sex are interrelated. They're both in some sense constructs. Why we care about some parts and not others is because there's this cultural uh, fixation that's produced by, again, social hierarchies. Anyway, so the point is that they're not even saying, we're not limiting our deconstruction to just gender. They're even going and saying, let's deconstruct sex too. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's new for me. Um, so does that, 
would that account for why it's okay to engage in sex change, like physical steps of sex change, even though the XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes don't change. We're just merely rearranging skin, if you will. And mm-hmm. so is that is that kind of the intellectual foundation for engaging in all of these um hormone treatments and and operations and surgeries and taking out people's reproductive organs so it's sort of that the, it's interesting in that um i think queer theorists would actually um would not necessarily be full-throatedly in favor of things like um you know sex change surgery whatever you want to call it um sex reassignment surgery but the, 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 they they wouldn't necessarily know why not because they'd be against it but because they're saying the real problem is we're, we're still working within this gender binary. You're still being like, oh, you want to change from what? Mm-hmm. From male to female. They're like, that's the problem. You, you, even by saying mm-hmm. I'm going to change from male to female, you're still reinforcing those two mm-hmm. categories. We must destroy the categories. We have to have no gender or we have to have 100 genders. We shouldn't even buy into the idea that there are these two genders. Yeah. So I think queer theorists might even trouble them. Uh, they'd say, wait a minute, you, without intending to, you're actually reinforcing this this cultural illusion that there's either male or female. That's why, again, that's why drag becomes so important because it is deliberately blurring these lines and saying there what's a, a drag performer is sort of doesn't fit into these buckets. That's exactly the point. They're trying to they're showing they're 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 they are troubling the narrative of this gender binary, and they are they're showing that it's socially constructed. Um, and they almost they they uh, they revel in the kind of transgressive the tradition of the gender binary. Creatures so, do. So, in thinking about some practical real world examples, Monique and I recently were on a trip. I can't remember what airport it was, but oh. there was a a person helping us return our rental car, and on roller skates with a beard, but female anatomy mm. and long hair. And fairy ears. And fairy ears. Little, mm. Yeah. It was, and, and so that is an example, I think, of what you're saying of like neither male nor females, like, mm-hmm. like Monique said, beards and a, a beard and boobs. Like right. it didn't, it didn't go together. And I, I feel like I see that a lot more as we travel, you know, man, like we were in another, everything happens in the airport, but we were at another airport and there was a man, oh, it wasn't even in the airport. It was down the street when we went out and I won't say the name of the place, but um, there was a guy wearing like stiletto heels mm. and oh, yeah. a full beard, but everything else was feminine. Yeah. Mm. It's like this deconstruction of, um, of sex into you, like, it's just fluid. I can be whatever I want to be. And I should make it clear, I, I don't just like in the same way that critical race praxis is in our culture, in our schools, that no one's, you know, what, 95% of the U.S. has not read Crenshaw, mm-hmm. even D'Angelo. I mean, only a tiny fraction of people actually read these theorists, but the ideas are very easy to grasp. Like once you're like, oh, there's no gender, it's all made up. Oh, fine. Mm-hmm. Then that's why I can, this is why I sh- in fact, I should revel in just breaking down these, these stereotypes. Um, and, and then there's a much larger discussion about, well, why do we have this, the sense that the internal gender identity is how I feel, how I view myself, gender identity. 
then their expression is how I choose to express that externally. And that can depend on every person. They can say, I'm going to express my gender in this way. I'm going to express my gender in this way. Then there's gender norms, which are cultural values. Culture thinks you should express your gender this way. And then there's a sexual orientation, who I'm attracted to. So there are all these different axes. And then, but the central governing one is this uh, secret, secret, sacred self. I think Carl Truman calls it that. Uh, he has a great book, which I'll recommend later, recommend later, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And basically ask the question philosophically, how do we come to be a culture that even has this idea of gender identity or the, the idea that I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, where did that even come from? So he goes way back to like the romantic period and, and other and philosophers from the last 200 years and explains how we got to the place where our inner sense of self determines everything about our lives. Not the, you know, we don't try to conform our, uh, our lives to external reality, Rather, we try to conform external reality to my secret, sacred self. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a very, it's an excellent book. Um, but but that explains why. why but my point is, the average person on the street is not like, oh, why am I doing this? Let me quote to you some Judith right. Butler, Gender Trouble, page <laughs> mm -hmm. 37. Yeah. They're just going with the cultural flow. Right. Now, um, I want to give a quick uh, plug here, and our moderators can put this in the comments. Um we did an interview with our friend, um, Dr. Aaron Preston from Val Valparaiso University about a year and a half ago on postmodernism. Yeah. And it's a it's a whole deep dive into things that Neil is only alluding to in deconstruction and all of this stuff. So if you want to know more about postmodernism and, and all of that, what that is, um, if the moderators can find that episode it says i remember it has the word my truth in the in the title of the episode and that would be a good one to to also as an adjunct to this also our review neil's um discussion that we had with him a while back on kendy's book how to be an anti-racist mm -hmm. would also be relevant here so our moderators can put that in the chat neil i want to monique wants to go some other questions but i i don't want to um miss out on as we're talking about real time practical examples to talk about some of these graphics that you sent over. Cause oh, yeah. I think this will continue to um, illustrate, you know, what we're talking about here with sex and gender. Mm. Yeah. So uh, can you put up the slide number one? So this is a, a slide. Actually I used it a year, just a year ago. It's called the gender bred person. If you look at it, it shows that they're going to these four axes. You have the gender identity, your sense of self, you have your sexual orientation, your heart, who you're attracted to, you have your sex, your biological sex, which is, again, your genitals, basically. Then you have expressions of how you choose to express your sense of self externally, what you wear, how you act, etc. Now, this is important. This is a slide. I literally pulled this off of a website. It's a very popular uh, website. Uh, and, and notice that there, there are these uh, continuum, there's spectrums. There, there's a gender spectrum, a gender identity spectrum, gender expression spectrum, biological sex spectrum orientation spectrum this on the you know it goes ranges from say male on the one side to female on the other side with um with intersex in the middle you have uh, sexual orientation you could be heterosexual homosexual on the middle there's bisexual okay so that's that was again that was i pulled that last july i know that was online last july that the next the, the next slide this is genderbred person 4.0 that was like 1.0 this is 4.0 it's already been i've read four times but I, the top part, I'm ignoring that because it's the same. The picture is the same. Look how they've changed. Notice there's not no longer one line with male and female and then intersex in the middle. 
there's now two lines that say things like you know maleness and femaleness, and you can be you can you can so be it's not super a spectrum male. anymore of no, no, men no. and women on either side. It's right because what would happen if you have a spectrum with male and female? What are you implicitly saying? There's a binary male yeah, and female. The, the binary and the, is true. But so they're like, whoa, queer theory says you can't do that. You're actually reifying the gender binary. So now gender person 4.0 has these two lines that are each independent. So you can be super male and super female. You can be, uh, you know, so you can express yourself super masculinely and super femininely in the same time or none at all. You can be so they had to get rid of those that whole idea of a, even the singular line, even though it's a spectrum, it's still too binary. Next slide. This is interesting. Actually, I, I knew about this and someone pointed out the conference. Now, why would you make a gender unicorn? This is a different site, but why gender unicorn? Someone pointed out, well, the gender person, gender person still looks like a male. The actual shape of the figure is still masculine, right? So they picked a unicorn. And now why unicorn? I'm not exactly sure. I think because again, the unicorn is imaginary, an imaginary creature. But they're pointing out all of this stuff is in some sense a social construct. It's not imaginary, but it's something that we've made up on our own, like the unicorn. And I you know you're like, well, is that a common thing? This is a book. It's an Italian queer theorist, but and this is his book, um, Queer Theories, an introduction. But it's got a unicorn on the front too. And my actually, my kids saw that and they're like, "What's with the unicorn?" I'm like, I, I don't actually know, but I, I guess it makes sense if you believe all of this is in some sense made up. All this gender stuff. I've been not not they're saying it's we've made it up and we have to get out of this mindset that it's a real thing. But notice now again, not only are there two now there are three lines under every category. <laughs> because I guess two is still too binary, so now you've got a third line, uh, a way to express your gender expression, gender identity, etc. Uh anyway, so it's interesting to see the evolution of this just even this figure that it wasn't, you know, even in July 2021. The 1.0 gender person was not woke enough. And now gender unicorn, I'm sure we're going to see. Actually, I did the same thing with um, the pride flags for the book that I'm currently writing. I went through the evolution of pride flags. It's really interesting to look at how the pride flags have changed from the rainbow flag to like the current uh, flag that includes like 10 colors and a, a, a triangle. Anyway, it's it's too, too much, more than you know. Now, I, I want to kind of get away from from the script or the the questions that I actually sent over. Sorry, Neil. Okay. <laughs> but as apologists and and you guys who are and I'm not saying that I won't answer this, but um, you guys are also parents. I have two questions. My first question is, what do you think the implications are for a culture that um, moves away from any idea of true sex because I, I think that's 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 the goal like we're we're getting away from you know the idea that there that god has created man and woman if we can say that sex itself is a social construct what do you do with genesis one what do you think the implications of that are and this is a question for both of you so you're asking, like, what are the long term, what do we see as like the long term projections as the culture adopts all of these kind of gendered spectrum, multiple spectrums framework? Yeah. What do you do? What do we see as kind of the long term impacts of that on on the culture from from like 
a Christian point, like what, what do, what is like, what do, what do you see as being that long run implication of basically, I, and I mean, you guys can disagree with me and tell me what you tell me. Maybe that's not true, but like one of the um, people in the chat mail, she said, that's like, it's like us playing God or replacing God. One, do you, is that how you would see it? Do you see it as we're either replacing or playing God and what is going to be the, the, long-term I feel like implication of a society biblically like it can we even look at it like from a biblical standpoint like what what are we in for is it possible to know that I'll let Neil take a whack at that first and then yeah I mean I think we're just going to see a lot of broken people um it's going to just things are going to break and I think you're already seeing that to some extent Uh, even I was going to recommend people follow some detransitioners these are people that have transitioned from their birth gender to some other gender and then decided they made a big mistake and came back. And there's some, there's a growing community of people that now we're seeing that because in the transgender boom really happened within the last five years. And you can see the data, just humongous referrals to gender clinics and, and gender surgery and hormone prescriptions have all boomed in the last five years. And then in the wake of that boom, you're also seeing, then there's some people saying, wait, that was a terrible mistake. And they're really tragic stories of people that are they're saying, I've just done permanent damage to my body. And why didn't anyone stop me? I was 15. I was 16. I was depressed. No, nobody had a conversation with me. Nobody yeah. tried to pull, pull the put the brakes on it. They just affirmed me and yeah. went forward. You're hearing more and more of those stories among detransitioners. And I think just beyond that, too, I think that the more this becomes prevalent in society, I think you're going to have people that just have never had any concept of a healthy relationship with their own self, a healthy family, a healthy sexuality, anything. It's all going to be completely, they have no reference frame of this is, and then they're not going to be able to say this is a normal, healthy family relationship, body, etc. And why won't they be able to say that? Because that's the whole point of queer theory. The whole point of queer theory is to, is to show that the idea of normalcy and health is all a con- an oppressive social construct. And if they succeed in doing that, as Christians, we like, well, there is such a thing as a healthy, God-ordained, correct, God-glorifying family and sexuality and, and, and relationship to your body and all those things. There is a real norm out there that's God-ordained. If you get rid of that, well, if you get rid of God's way of viewing reality, you embrace chaos and ultimately your own destruction. So anyway, I, I, I don't want to make, you know, predictions about society. I just say the people are going to be hurting. And I think Christians then should, you know, with truth and love say, we want to, one over one, just embody health. Um, yeah. You know, just, we want to show people, no, you can have a happy, loving family. You can have happy, loving relationships. You can be happy in your body. You can be, you, you know, even when your body is, you know, is not quote unquote normal. There, there's a there's a legitimacy in critique. And, you know, queer theory will critique things like standards of beauty, and 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 I think that's fair. As Christians, we should be like, yeah, you don't have to look like some porn star on TV with you know, humongous exaggerated breasts. And no, you can be a just normal average woman and be happy with that. You can be a normal average man. You can be disabled. You can have, you, you don't have to be, you know, you can just glorify God by living in the body he's given you and be content. 
And I think, whereas I think our culture for many different reasons, not just queer theory, pornography says, so, you know, be discontent. You're, you're not, you're not okay. You're not good the way you are. You need to get better. You need to, and I think we can say, no, we have a way to get contentment and joy just by living in the body and the world God's created. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Neil. Um, I think I would just add to that, that I would love to see churches uh, positioning themselves even now or how they are going to minister to detransitioners or to people who um, like take the trans idea and the ideals of, of homosexuality, like all the way to the end of the road. And they realize like this actually doesn't lead to the freedom I thought I was going to get. Um, we're going to have a lot of people very soon who have done things to their body um, fairly severe things that they're they're going to be hurting, confused. They they need the gospel. They need hope. They need a better uh, a modeling for a, a better way and for that contentment and a vision for what their life can become mm-hmm. on the other side of these choices. And I would I would love to see more churches have some forward thinking of how are we going to position ourselves even now to reach out to these people and in this community, rather than just saying, Oh, this is weird and peculiar and deviant, which, you know, we can have the conversation about the sadness uh, of this, but you know, how are we going to respond right now? We just have so many Christians, quite frankly, who have been brainwashed by the culture to use the word of my 23 year old this morning on this issue is that there's just so much brainwashing um, for young people, I think that she's right about that. And um, I'm concerned that um, we have so many people in the name of Jesus affirming of LGBT people, affirming them in, in some ways that aren't helpful. And so, I don't know, those are some thoughts. I, but also, I think that there's a big conversation happening right now. This is another thing I was talking to my 23-year-old about this morning, is shifts of what it means to be a conservative. Um, you're seeing some, some data points that conservatives are becoming more and more embracing of the LGBT community. And I think that in a few years, it wouldn't surprise me if biblically faithful Christians find themselves without a political party altogether. Because... Um, I don't think it's going to be too much longer that Republicans are going to be continuing to affirm traditional marriage. I think they're they're already showing signs of embracing the queer agenda. And um, I think that very soon, biblically faithful Christians are just going to find themselves like there's 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 no party that they can kind of go along with that. That's a theory. Uh, I wouldn't die for that, but that's, if you're asking me to prognosticate, there's, there's my prognostic. prognosticate. Go ahead, girl. All right. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, as you guys look out, um, what, what you guys see as some of the implications, yeah. because I don't know that people are looking far in advance or, you know, beyond their moment of, of today or what's happening in their kid's school. But, you know, what's happening in your child's school regarding queer theory is definitely going to have an impact 25 years from today. And 
you know, I, I wonder if we consider that at all or, you know, the drag queen story hour, the implications of that drag queen story hour are going to have ripples, yeah. you know, and it's just really important for us to be considering, um, you know, and being future forward. How are we looking forward into into some of that? So I want to ask Neil, as we kind of wrap up here, um, it, I feel like queer theory is still very much in the academic realm, is there anything that we could read as lay people mm -hmm. that would provide us some kind of onboarding to the, to the major um, ideas behind queer theory? Yeah. I don't think it's at all relegated to the academic realm. I think it, the praxis is everywhere. And so just, if you want to know what queer theory looks like in practice, just log on to any LGBTQ organization, the human rights campaign, pink news, you'll get, the you get undiluted gender and you know queer theory yeah that okay, queer theory in its purest form sure there are these academics writing these incomprehensible papers but their ideas are boiled down and simplified and then put out everywhere <laughs> so all the you know uh, blues clues was a preschool oriented show it's a cartoon show with a dog or something but they had a pride month cartoon that had a pride parade and the, one of the characters was a beaver with a double mastectomy scar. There you go. There's the sign. And so the, this is this are targeted at three to seven year old, I think. And the, the lyrics that and the, the the drag queen sang a song to the tune of the Anscar marching, and the lyrics were things like, "These babas are non-binary. They love each other so proudly, and they all go marching in the big pride parade." Um, Ace Ben and Ace, bi, and pan grown-ups. That's asexual, bisexual, and pansexual grown-ups you see can love each other so proudly, and they all go marching in the big pride parade. So, and then, again, the, the, the mastectomy scar, I mean, this is, this is for preschoolers. Uh, and, and this is just becoming so normal I mean, for, for most people. Um, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I think you can draw a pretty much a straight line from the most lofty esoteric queer theory ideas to Blue's Clues. It's there. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say it's just, but I, in terms of popular sources, again, I, I always go to say primary sources. The, I will say the queer theorist writings can be pretty hard to read. They are highly influenced by postmodern author, authors, and so they're not very clear all the time. Um, but the, the one book here uh, that I'd recommend is accessible, I think, is, is Wilkins' book, Queer Theory, Gender Theory. Um, and Wilkins is an activist, uh, ran the gender PAC, gender pack, um, but but definitely is heavily promoting and very easy to understand. Uh, so book. that's a book we want to make sure everybody understands is uh, it's called Queer Theory, Gender Theory. It's not a Christian book. It's a oh, no, pro no. queer theory book. So if you want to understand as a primary source, yeah, that would be something to refer people to. Yeah, and if for, you look for, at mm -hmm, go it, go ahead. I was going to say for, so for um, well, another another as a non-Christian source, but it's definitely in in a non-queer theory affirming source is uh, Abigail Schreier's book Irreversible Damage. This is a really good one that I would recommend giving to um, friends, non-Christian friends who are super progressive and LGBTQ affirming all the way. Give them Abigail Schreier's book Irreversible Damage. It's about their rapid rise in female to male transgenders among teenage girls. And she asks, what is going on with all these girls suddenly demanding testosterone and um, double mastectomies and, and hysterectomies? What, why is that happening? And then she goes and interviews parents. She interviews um, doctors and, and tries to, and says, what, what's happening? 
Um, and so it's a really good book and make people just maybe at least pump the brakes on like what's going on here. And we're already seeing that actually in the UK, they just closed the Tavistock gender clinic um, because they're really beginning to see that some of these practices are not safe. Even from a purely secular perspective, they're giving kids drugs. They're doing things without a lot of proper protocols. So they shut down. I think they just, I think they just shut in the clinic. Uh, so we're beginning to see, hopefully, even a secular backlash, which is my, my mind boggles at Christians who are trying to be on the cutting edge. I'm like, you're not on the cutting edge. Maybe you're on the wrong, you're on the wrong side of history because people are realizing this is super. Bill Maher had a monologue. Bill Maher is like an atheist progressive, but had a monologue on his show about what in the world is going on. This is not sane that we have 20% of Generation Z identifying as LGBTQ. Uh, it's a humongous rise. Suddenly, where did that come from? Uh, anyway, so uh, that's another... For Christian books, I think the number one resource I would give is Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Uh, she's a professor at, I think, Houston Baptist University. Mm -hmm. uh, but Piercy's Love Thy Body is a holistic book about Christian doctrine of the body. Um, really yeah. good. Talks about transgender. Talks about um, sexuality. Talks about all these different issues. Um, that's good. Another one is, um, Andrew Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate, God and the Transgender Debate. It's mainly about transgender, but it's very practical. Like, how do you think about it as a Christian? And then this is, okay, the, 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 the book I've read, which I loved, uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's very good. It's a little academic. He's a historian. It's, it's excellent though. It traces the ideas the last 300 years that led to transgender today um he and there is a there is now an abbreviated version of that book yeah called so, strange new world yes mm -hmm. so I I've, yeah say, i've not read that, read that one but all right sorry regarding the queer three book i want to um i want to make sure that people know i'm not i think you might have a uh older version of the queer theory gender theory by wilkins uh -huh. because it's a different cover still oh, the okay. same book i have I have the third edition, so it's gone through. But I mean, it's funny because um, Wilkins is not like an academician that I can tell. But it's I think it's already gone through three editions. And if you if you look at it, like it's one of the top recommended books. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So I think so. The other one, I guess, Jagos is the more academic one. I actually found this less helpful. It's more academic and scholarly, but I, I found this much more practical. So and there are other okay. ones that I've read too. But there's the good two to know. Yep. Now I have a question, and this is not in the question. So if you don't want to comment on it, it's okay. Cause you haven't prepped for it, but I've seen some, some posts on Twitter and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this, that some people are suggesting that there's latent in queer theory, the idea of desensitizing children to pedophilia and that there is con potentially some connection there um, with redefining even sex and sexual partners as a social construct. Um, have you run across anything like that in your readings on yeah, queer theory? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that is, yeah. So Michelle Foucault was um, a pedophile. I mean, he just was, he, he was like the this huge postmodern philosopher, but he was a pedophile. Um, and so that, that if your if your whole purpose and I'm not saying just because he's a pedophile therefore no but I'm saying that was his 
whole philosophy of breaking down norms and exposing their just power plays or social constructs. Well, one norm obviously is the as an age norm. Like you, well, you shouldn't engage in sex acts between adults and children. Well, what's child? That's a total what, 18, 16, 14. How come it's how come it's rape when it's a 20 year old and a 15 year old, but not when it's a 15 year old, a 14 year old, and not when it's a when it's a 35 year old and 25 year old because it's 10 year gap. So so his point is like, yeah, you're gonna destabilize those notions. Uh, so and then so did that carry out carry over into critical into queer theory, those ideas of destabilizing all of these different categories? Well, yeah, so here's a quote from Jago's that academic book. Um, she talks about this is a quote, I'm gonna read a long quote here, so no one can accuse me of quote mining. Uh, variously referred to as intergenerational sex, child abuse, man-boy love, and pedophilia, even the semantic continuum of terms used to describe the concept evokes a variety of positions in the debate structured overwhelmingly by such issues as consent, power, and legal definition of childhood. Legal definition of childhood. Once the age of consent, right? It's, it's a legal construct. So you're saying that you know all these terms they refer to the same concept, but you know, well, one sounds pejorative, pedophilia, another sounds intergenerational sex, man boy love. Now she says, this is a quote, the issue of intergenerational sex, which tells you where she's what term she's using, continues to be debated vigorously in many gay and lesbian communities. The protection of children is deemed by some to be ethically crucial. That's good to the development of a gay identity, but is dismissed as others as erotic hysteria. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. What is the status of different and arbitrary age of consent laws? Do children have a sexuality and a right to sexual agency, a right to choose their partners? A child? Why don't Why don't they? Why don't you give them freedom? Why is Why listen to this? Why is age? unlike, say, race or class, understood as a sexualized power differential protected by law. Think about that. We don't say, oh, there's, there's in the mind of critical theorists, the black and white relationship is one of power differential, power dynamics. Whites are on top, blacks are on the bottom, whites have power, blacks don't, whites are oppressors. So, but we would never say, well, you can't have an interracial sex is bad inherently because there's a power dynamic. Class, rich and poor, richer on top, poor on the bottom, richer oppressors, poor. But you never say if you have sex with a, with a rich person, your wife's poor, well, therefore it's it's unethical. Well, no, it's, it's not a powered, it's not, but there's a law saying interracial sex is illegal, interracial, interclass sex is illegal. Mm -hmm. So then why is interage sex illegal? Mm He's -hmm. asking why, why treat it differently? They're all power differentials, right? And the last question. Is, this is she's asking this question as an open question. Is it possible to eroticize children in an ethical way? And here's how she concludes all those questions. These are the questions commonly raised and by no means yet resolved in the controversy over intergenerational sex. So this this is not like this is like very academic, very neutral, very just and she's very she's a Queer theorists, but she's just saying, yeah, this is a debate among queer theorists whether or not intergenerational sex can be ethical. Can you eroticize children in an ethical way? That's an open question. And re refresh our memory again on what what book you were reading from. There. That was uh, Anne Marie Jago's Queer Theory and Introduction, pages okay. seventy and seventy one. And it's on my website. I think the entire paragraph is on my website. Um, but it's pretty shocking. But it's just that's that's just the way queer theorists think about these issues. 
It's not so by that, ex that explains why I'm seeing more and more on Twitter this idea that the idea of protecting a child's innocence mm -hmm. is simply a social construct. Mm -hmm. That that's why it's okay to take a six-year-old to Drag Queen Story Hour because we need to destabilize their sexuality and awaken it in a safe, quote unquote, safe way so that eventually, and this is some of the tweets I've seen is so that the child can begin to choose their sexual partners right. with the idea that potentially the child could choose an adult mm -hmm. as a sexual partner. And so you're trying to deconstruct, if you will, the age of consent. Um, and so this is why, again, we can have four-year-olds choosing their sex in potentially eventually, I think what's down the road is four-year-olds choosing their own sexual partners mm -hmm. And, you know, which could lead to all kinds of interesting predatory conversations. But I think it's it. I mean, this is a lot of what I've read in um, social justice work on child studies mm -hmm. um, and ageism. Yeah. Of course. And looking, yep. Yeah. Looking at ageism from the point of because ageism runs the spectrum of like, you know, what are we doing with the elderly? But looking at ageism um, from the child and youth perspective, the, the conversation of consent and what it means to consent and why and when a child should have con the ability to consent. It's a big conversation that's happening that I don't think people are aware of behind the scenes. Um, but the, the critical child studies and what does it mean to be a child? And is childhood even um, a social construct or an arbitrary term? Just it, it moves so fluidly in the paragraph you just read. And I think the point is that it, once you accept the premise, mm -hmm. all of these norms, none of them are God ordained. None of them are universal. They're all you know negotiated in our culture as expressions of power. They're all meant to justify the social hierarchy. All of them, not just a few, they're all just arbitrary. There is no God's eye view of reality. There's no mm -hmm. God ordained norm. Well, that means they mean all means all. They mean even things like childhood, childhood innocence, all of that's just your own prejudices and stereotypes. And you have to begin to, it's, 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 you're valorizing the destabilization of these arbitrary constructs. And, and I hate to say this, but like one, you want to, you want to do that when it comes to things like a race. Well, that's all just a construct, all of these quote unquote, the white values and the Eurocentric values without even asking, well, maybe some of those quote unquote white values are actually God's values, maybe some, not all, I'm just saying some, but if you no, 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 they're all just social constructs. Where do you stop when, when you've already pronounced all these norms or social constructs? And they themselves will tell you the same reasoning is being applied to race, to class, to gender, to sexuality, and to age. Can you spell the last name of the author from Qu yeah, The Queer so Theory of the White Book? Yeah, I don't have to pronounce her name. She's Australian, but this Jag goes J-A-G-O-S-E, J-A-G-O-S-E. Thank you. That's great. Now, at the beginning of the show, we had a thoughtful question from Tiana, who's a newer listener. Um, and she was asking the question, what does it mean to be a drag queen and why is it sinful? Hopefully, Tiana, we've we've answered that question throughout this whole show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I've had that your question in mind as Neil and I have been Neil and Monique and I have been talking because, you know, I think that you're asking the question that many people are asking. And, you know, I hope that you have found this broadcast helpful to bring clarity about the biblical vision of 
of the man and the woman, um, Genesis 1, that we are made for each other and we are made to procreate, we are made to, to rule and to reign, and that this is part of the creation mandate. And so when we look at these kinds of disruptions and we could look at drag queens as being kind of an iconic disruption of God's created order. That's, that's why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So can, can Tiana, I, actually, I hope you found it helpful. Yeah, go ahead, Neil. Let me just quickly add to that. Cause I think I want to steal man that argument. Cause so I want to point out that sometimes I think Christians can in, in response to the wanting to affirm the goodness of God's creation, they can kind of just retreat to what I think actually we could be able to admit our social conventions. So for example, um, in, in our culture, men wear pants generally, and women wear dresses. Sometimes women wear pants, but, but men don't wear dresses. It's kind of a cultural convention. Now, is there, or skirts, say. Men don't wear skirts. Now, is that a cultural construct? And the answer is yes. Why do I say that? Well, think about it. Ancient Romans wore what? Togas. Scottish men wear kilts. Now, what's a kilt? A kilt's a skirt. It's a Scottish skirt, but it's a skirt. But in their culture, warriors wore that, right? So what you wear as a male or female is culturally dependent. In other cultures, I'm sure that men wear things that look like dresses. And, and So there's one thing. What about colors? Is blue masculine and pink feminine? Well, not, not objectively. That's a cultural thing. In the Middle Ages, you know, men would wear pink because pink was like red, and red's the color of war and fire. So that's a cultural thing. So, so I think we should recognize that actually many of these things, these associations we have with things like what you wear, how you, know, how you dress, um, some of those things are, many of the things are culturally constructed. Now, the question then becomes, so why is it wrong then for, say, a man to wear a dress? If it's all a cultural, it's like God's, God doesn't say, men, thou shalt wear this. And okay, there's a passage in Leviticus that says if a man cross-dresses, that's punishable by death, in fact. But that's Leviticus, and you know, so today, do we have to follow that law? What's the big deal? Is it all a cultural contract? Well, here's the thing. I don't think men should wear dresses. Why? Even though it's a cultural contract. Why? Because when you do that, in our, in our culture, that signifies that you are rejecting that category. You're not just doing it. It's not, it's not arbitrary. It's an expression and saying, you're saying to the world, I am a male, but I want to present myself as a female. So in doing that, you are saying, you're showing, demonstrating that I am rejecting God's category. I want to be classified as this other category. And I think as Christians, that's why it's wrong. We want to embrace and say, I, I love being the way God made me. We want to embrace that. And I think some people really do suffer from gender dysphoria. Some people feel uncomfortable being in the body they're in. They feel like I'm in the wrong body. I should have been born a male or a female. I think it can be a real psychological state. But given that we believe God created our bodies, we then, and that's the reality, then I think as Christians, we then actually work to train ourselves to embrace and rejoice in the way God's created us. We don't rebel against it and say, I reject God's creation, and I'm going to embrace a different reality. Um, so that's why I would say, yes, I can, we, I can these are, these many of these things are social constructs or cultural artifacts, and we can still respect them because I want to show People, I am. I rejoice in my masculinity. My wife rejoices in her femininity. Nothing's wrong with that. When my sorry, last thing. When my son was little, we we talked to him about transgender at a pretty young age. We realized it's important for us to get in there first, for the culture does. So he's young. We talked to him. I think he was maybe seven or eight. He said some boys, you know, feel like and really want to be girls, and he was just shocked. But he said this, and he has two sis- younger sisters. He did not say. 
why would any boy want to be a girl? He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, what's wrong with being a boy? Because he's already thinking, in, he's not thinking, well, girls are bad and boys are good. Who'd want to be a girl? He's thinking in God's categories, which are, well, God created these categories and they're good. What's wrong with being a boy? What's wrong, need to, what's wrong with being a girl? And I, that's the way a Christian worldview should work, is that even when you don't have, um, you haven't addressed this issue specifically, you're thinking in God's categories already. These are good things God's created, and we should then rejoice in them, not reject them. That's very good. And in a few weeks, I want to tell our listeners that in September, we're going to finally have Linda Seiler on the show. Um, and she was actually somebody who lived um, as a man for several years and um, has done her doctoral work on gender issues. So we'll be talking about more of the biblical counseling um, side of the gender conversation in September from uh, she does um, she's a campus minister. She works with college students. So she sees this stuff living out all the time in her ministry. Super excited. She's in like my top five of people I've wanted to get on the mm -hmm. show since the beginning. Right behind you. Right behind you. <laughs> That's right. I know, but are we finally are. She's Yay. finally coming on um, in September. So Looking forward to that. So we'll just continue to ride that mm -hmm. wave, Neil. I, I thank you so much for adding value to the show by yeah. by bringing those comments forward. I think that was really good mm -hmm. and very helpful. And Tiana says, yes, this has been very helpful to her. Uh, I'll be able to give my son more appropriate answers when he asks about these things. So, yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. You're anytime. So when we will be calling you again, okay. once a year, you're going to be getting that. Don't play no games. Yes. We are so grateful for all your wisdom. Thank you for doing the heavy lifting and reading all them. I'm telling you, you read like a book an hour. You have to, <laughs> all, all the things you put out. It's so needed and so helpful. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're Talk welcome. to you later. God bless. Good night. Night. Okay. So we're going to go hear from our friends at impact 360. Then we're going to come back for a second topic. So we will see you in 90 seconds. Yes. Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change. I aspire to be someone who continues to build bridges with other cultures and who cultivates a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving. Now, after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world and how to not have this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen. I don't think I would have had that same clarity. In this world, it's kind of like in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest and who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be God. But he's not yelling, he's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people like, hey, like, be still, listen to this guy, he's calling you, he's calling you home. Yay, love our friends over at Impact 360 down in Georgia. What is the, the Pine city? Mountain. Pine, Pine Mountain, Where yes. there's one stoplight. There's one. Yes, but we love them. Super grateful for their ministry to young people. They have a one-week intensive 
um, for high school students, a two-week intensive for high school students, a nine-month gap year program, and a master's program for students. And they're really busy um, impacting young people and influencing young people toward a Christian worldview. What does it mean to actually be a Christian? And how do we consider the issues of our current culture in light of the Christian worldview? So we're there once or twice a year um, our talking friends, about Elisa. critical race theory. Lisa Childers, Brett Kunkel, yeah. Uncle Kunkel. Yeah. I don't know if that's public news, but <laughs> <Okay. no. laughs> yes. um, yeah. So, so. Yeah. We're all there and really just working to help young people think through um, the Christian worldview and, and look at, you know, these current issues in light of a Christian worldview. Now, the next thing we want to talk about, which is kind of in line with what we were talking with, um, with Neil about. Oh, boy. Is someone actually Terrence Terrence Williams? Oh, out in Terrence! Virginia. This is Terrence. Mm, this is all, all Terrence is doing. Terrence sent me an article today, and I was like, "Real!" I had something else I wanted to talk about the second segment, but this I really thought was just a gem. It is called "Paid Menstrual Leave Is a Workers' Rights Issue That Employers Should Guarantee." Now, this this um, intellectual masterpiece appeared in Teen Vogue. It was in Teen Vogue. And this is why I thought that it <laughs> I can't was with this. That, that's why I actually thought that it was amazing and should be talked about because when we talk about the indoctrination of young people brainwashing we have to also realize all of the ways that they come for your kid like they're not just it's not just coming through the school it's not just yeah. in you know certain Disney movies even though Disney is well off the rails um you know, it, it's menstrual leave—a human right. It's a human right. <laughs> I but can't what with you, this. Okay, as a parent, what do you think the goal would be to put this in a Teen Vogue magazine? <sighs> to just start the indoctrination about. Well, first of all, defining it as a workers' rights issue to me is like, all right, we need clarity about what is a human right. Mm -hmm. Like, so we're starting the indoctrination early and often of redefining. Human what a rights. right is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I also wonder, because the article goes in, gosh, we don't have time to go through the whole Well, and article. it starts off, very first sentence is it mentions a 12-year-old. Ashley well, Hubbard got her period at 12 years old. So it's immediately it's going to pull in the teen mm -hmm. kind of people of, you know, hey, this is, you're in an oppressed group. You have a menstrual cycle. Well, I thought it was interesting that the fourth word is her. Her. Okay, so we are talking about are hers. We, are we acknowledging that women are the hers. ones with periods? Okay, so we, we aren't talking about the hymns. We are talking about the hers. And maybe this person is just using feminine pronouns because she identifies as a woman or, you know, I don't know if you air quote around a woman. I, but I'm hers. so confused. Now, when we go down a little bit long, uh, a little bit more, the whole argument is why menstruating people because this is what they are now called. Hubbard is one of millions of people who menstruate. And the, the rest of the article is about the menstruating people. I, parents, I'm highlighting this, this and, and not just parents, but anybody who works with kids and young people. Don't buy into this don't, language. Don't allow your children to buy into this. Don't settle for it. Have conversations early and often about what does it mean, one, to be a human person, two, what does it mean to, to 
have human rights. What is a right? One of the we had um we had Katie Faust on a couple weeks ago, and one of the best definitions of a human right that I have heard in just like lay terms came from Katie's book, um, Them Before Us. And in looking at a human right, she defines it as something that is given to us by God before government, prior to government. I have the right to life. We have life before we had the installation of government. And so in looking at this, in looking at this article, it goes on to say it that it calls them menstruators. Well, it's are says, menstruators receiving unfair benefits? Why can't menstruators just use normal six days? Why can't you use the word woman? Well, I think that it it talks about that the added benefit of workers' rights. And one, should I use should I use sick time? Should I not? I thought that was hilarious because one, there's only 16, might be 14, states in the union that offer sick time, one, which is completely, according to this article, uh, uh, injustice. But So now menstruating is a justice issue? It is completely a justice issue, which is why I want to highlight this, is that everything falls under this banner of justice. But I also think that... Love your neighbor. Well, I think (laughs) that it highlights something else, which is the idea of work. Yeah. And do you need to work or should you be given things? Who says that having sick time is a right? Who says that um, you getting time off at all is a human right issue? I think that in reading this issue, and again, this is just my opinion that I am wanting to highlight before before you guys to let you know that these kind of things are in your kids. You know, I used to have like the teen magazines and things like that, um, which is probably just all online now. But there's questions of should you work? Who should you work for? Um, or should you just quit if they're not giving you what you want? And you completely have the right to state what you want. And one of the things that I, the last thing that I'll highlight is, um, it's already a law. It's already a law in Zambia. It says I, but in Zambia, they only get one day. So a woman can have one day off. It's called a mother's day, one day off a month, um, to be able to, you know, if you have cramps or whatever, but it says menstrual leave simply acknowledges that workers live in bodies with different needs, functions, and experiences. To me, that sounds a lot like the difference between a man and a woman. But when we use these arbitrary terms and when we are getting away from things like Neil was talking about the, the, the definition of what is a man and what is a woman, then you get articles here that can be very confusing and articles that introduce the idea of maybe I should work, maybe I shouldn't work. I don't necessarily need to work. Um, and if I do have, if I do get a job, well, the job should bend toward my wants and desires, not necessarily having a true understanding of what it means to work. So I don't know. I just I wanted to talk about that a little bit because it was highly um, interesting to me. I don't know what you're doing. This, uh, I'm just reading this. There are so many instances where the bodily autonomy of workers is sidelined in the name of productivity, asking for bathroom breaks, required proof of illness, the attitude that we must work through pain. But workers aren't children to be managed by paternalistic 
bosses. When it comes to menstruation, there is no reason why workers don't deserve the right to paid leave. I mean, the ent- I, I just dispute the framing of the conversation. It's framing it as if, in in to use the the terms of critical theory, it's almost like this is an oppressive work environment because I I, I need a bathroom break. You know, it's 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 peculiar to me, but. Anyways, Teen Vogue. It is. But and it's there it's, to brainwash your children. It's just a normalization of how you should think about the way you live. Um, on Facebook, Rachel Kerr says, way to encourage women to be weak. And that is that is the other side of this argument, is that by allowing for... And I mean, this is an argument put forward by women, not, you know, men, but, it, you know, that... The argument from from some women is that it creates a weak, um, a weak idea of what a woman is, that it's paternalistic. There's just a ton of argument for the other side. But um, I, I do think it's very interesting that this is what, you know, is being put forward before young people. Yeah. Do uh, biological males who identify as females get leave? I think you have to be a menstruating person. You have to be a menstruating person. But then the the non-menstruating people, what are their rights? Like, do they just get left out? They they, do. So it's just too bad, so sad for them. Yes, but the goal, as as we would read through the article, the goal is equity. Yes, I saw that. Which, again, all of these redefinitions of of terms. And yeah, um, biological males who identify as female get leave. No, they, they, Mm. no. But you would be able to see a man, someone who completely looks like a man, maybe who hasn't had the full gender reassignment surgery um, out, you know, for a day or two or seven. So. uh, Oh, is that how we could keep women's sports for women only? Only menstruators can be on the team. Well, there's that. Do formerly menstruating people get menopause leave? No, it's very ageist. It's only for a certain group of people. I, I just, I think the, the, the important point that it raises, which I think is, is good for us to think about is um, how do we define what a right is? Because yeah. that, that to me really is the only important question that this intellectual masterpiece is raising is what is a right we need to be conversant about what a right is because soon everything's going to be right just because you want it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds nice. And yeah. Um, Kate Harrington on Facebook says, how do you, they check if you're a menstruating person or not then? You know what? And with that, that's a great <laughs> comment. And we're just going to leave it there because I can't go into all that. I don't know. It's not my business. All right. I like your earrings. Thank, oh my gosh, I like your earrings too. These earrings were so that was um, subtle, wasn't it? Were completely handmade by Erin Erickson. Um, we met a couple of her friends. She wasn't actually able to attend the Women in Apologetics conference down in Florida, but we met a couple of her friends, and I was like, oh my gosh, like she can't be here. Let's call her on the phone. So we called her, and um, I found out that she actually made earrings and. She um, made us each four pairs. Her friends were wearing them, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I need, I love earrings. And, um, yeah, so they arrived yesterday, 
and just or day before and super grateful. So thank you very much, Aaron, for just blessing us with earrings. And I say yes and amen, honey. Let the Lord use you. Thank you. <laughs> you guys, this has been great. So much thanks to Laura, to Emily, to Bob, the one and only button pusher, Bond Traeger, and especially to Neil Shinvi for coming on and gracing us with all of his wisdom. We will are we here next week? Yeah. yeah. Oh, next week. You guys, next week, we are doing a special um, All the Things. It is going to be an Ask Us Anything. So feel free to send your um, questions in in advance to info at centerforbiblicalunity.com. Info at centerforbiblicalunity.com. And in the subject line, just put ATT question. Centerforbiblicalunity.com. Info at centerforbiblicalunity.com. That's our email address. Info at centerforbiblicalunity.com. And in the subject line, put ATT question, and we will make sure that your questions get answered on our Maybe. live show next week. That is it. I almost forgot. And um, we've got, uh, go check out our new website. I want to say a special thank you to Allison Wardrip, who does our show notes every week. If you've never visited the show notes, it's a wonderful resource. All the links and helpful things are there. Uh, we have a brand new website by Amanda Jones. Um, uh, one of our volunteers redesigned the whole thing. Uh, we launched it and um, it's a wonderful redesign. So go check that out and make sure you're subscribed because every Friday we send out a preview of the show. So you can get that in your inbox to let you know what is happening on the show um, on Saturday. So you can make sure to tune in. All right, y'all. Have a good weekend. Good night. Good night. And God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com. And find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.